ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 5th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Federal Parliament resumes tomorrow for 2024 with the revamped Stage 3 tax cuts centre stage. The government's released its draft bill and it wants the cuts passed by Easter. The Coalition and the Greens are yet to decide. The Shadow Cabinet will meet today to consider a position. Under the proposed legislation, all income earners will get a tax cut. They'll be more generous to low and middle income earners. Regardless, the opposition says it's a broken election promise. Here's political reporter Monty Boval. Touching down in Canberra, there's a similar theme to the message among coalition MPs as they return for this year's first parliamentary sitting week. We're hearing a lot of things, mainly around Anthony Albanese's broken promises. His credibility is shot out of this and any other promise he makes from now on people will question. Once again, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have um, lied to the Australian public. The government's changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts are on the top of the agenda. The tweaked plan will halve the benefit directed towards higher income earners and boost the tax break offered to lower and middle income earners. The government wants it passed before Easter to ensure employers and the Australian Tax Office can implement the new tax rates from July. But first, the Greens or the Coalition need to be convinced. The leader of the Nationals is David Littleproud. We'll be pragmatic, we'll discuss the, the details of that, but we want to put as much back in people's pockets as we can. But understand this cost of living measure that they put in place won't hit people's wallets for another five months. I don't know where Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese have been, but people are hurting now, not getting something in five months. They need support now and we think there should be something temporary and targeted. Internal polling is telling Labor the public broadly likes its Stage 3 tax changes. But Greens leader Adam Bant says more could and should be done. Labor still hasn't fixed the unfairness in the Stage 3 tax cuts. When legislation comes to Parliament, Labor needs to explain why Labor wants to give a $4,500 a year tax cut to politicians, billionaires and the very wealthy, while asking middle income earners to be satisfied with only an extra $15 a week. One person who has already made a decision is independent Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie. So I'm ready to vote on it. Bring them on Tuesday. Go and put the Liberals and leave the Greens down, let them bitch and carry on. If they want to knock them back, let them and let them wear that. If I was the Liberals, I would come on board and I would smarten up because seriously, um, there is no need to stand in the way of those. As the sales pitch on the plan continues, so does the defence of breaking an election promise. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese maintains it was important to respond to changed economic circumstances. I have a responsibility to make a difference. This change was not easy. It was not an easy decision, but it was the right decision done at the right time for the right reasons. The government won't need backing from the Greens if the coalition supports the revised plan. The Shadow Cabinet meets today before a decision is firmed up at a joint party room meeting tomorrow. Monty Boval and the Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers is urging the opposition to support the changes or risk losing touch with workers. Whatever position we hear from the opposition today and tomorrow, it's already clear that they are out of touch. It's already clear that they want to unwind these changes. We're trying to do the right thing by people. We encourage the parliament to support our efforts. 
From next January, Australia could have a national vehicle emission standard in place. The federal government says it could result in new car owners saving up to $1,000 a year in fuel by 2028. Russia and Australia are the only developed economies without such a scheme. Under the program, all categories of new cars must reduce their carbon dioxide emissions by more than 60% by the end of the decade or the manufacturers will face a penalty if they don't. For more on this, I spoke earlier with the Federal Infrastructure and Transport Minister Catherine King. Catherine King, the government wants the scheme operational by next January. It has to go through Parliament. What benefit will it deliver drivers from next year and in 2028? Well, by 2028, we should see that drivers are paying a lot less for their petrol because we will have more efficient cars in our market. Uh, $1,000 uh, on average per car per year uh, is the modelling that we have done, the savings that are there for consumers. Uh, we know that, and, and it's not just about fuel savings, but they are the immediate cost of living uh, relief uh, for people in terms of these efficiency standards, but it also does a few other things. Obviously, it's good for the environment, but it's also really good for human health. We know that there are significant impacts, significant respiratory diseases that come from having uh, cars that are higher emitting, and so reducing that's good for that. It's also really good for fuel security because it actually reduces uh, the country's reliance on uh, a number of uh, the number of cars that we have that are using uh, more petrol than we really should be using because they're not as efficient as they could be. Do any of the top ten selling models on the market in Australia at the moment meet? this new standard? Really what this is about is across the entire fleet that a manufacturer has. And so what this focuses on is saying to those manufacturers, when you're making decisions about what cars you will bring to the Australian market, uh, and again, it's whether they are internal combustion engine cars, diesel cars, uh, hybrid or electric vehicles, across your entire fleet, you need to meet these targets. And so that provides the opportunity and the incentive for those manufacturers to think about what are the cars what are the mix of cars across what they're making that they bring to Australia, but also what is the technology we're putting in those cars that come into Australia to make sure that we're getting the most efficient. That's really what, what this is about. It's across the entire fleet and they will uh, make decisions about what cars they're bringing to Australia. But at the moment, there is no incentive for manufacturers uh, to make sure that our, car, our market is prioritised in order of those efficient vehicles. And of course, we, we know uh, that's, that China has standards, Japan has standards, New Zealand, US, EU. Uh, we're one of the few countries that doesn't alongside Russia and that our market's not prioritised for those most efficient vehicles. Sure, I understand that. But do any of the top 10 at the moment meet the new standard? Well, in terms of that, as I said, taking one vehicle out of the fleet doesn't work because it's across the entire fleet. So really that's what the Does that car sound... manufacturers need to do. That sounds like a no. Look at so what the car manufacturers need to do is actually look at the entirety of their fleet. Uh, they get credits for ones that are over the target, debits for ones that are below, and then they look at that across the entire fleet. It acts as an incentive. Uh, and as I said, the um, way in which this works is it provides that opportunity for car manufacturers to make the decisions about bringing more efficient vehicles here into the Australian market. You're holding a media event this morning with the nation's largest motoring organisation. Just how much pushback are you expecting from car makers? Um, look, at the moment, we have, obviously, we have put out our, the, the um, impact analysis. It shows there are three, three 
three main options. There's um, an option that really doesn't achieve uh, consumer savings, doesn't achieve uh, emissions. Uh, there's an option that uh, we think goes uh, too far too quickly. And then there's a middle option that the government is saying is our preferred option. We're consulting over that over the next four weeks prior to bringing in legislation into the parliament. We've been developing and working on this with uh, the car industry, with consumers uh, for over 12 months. And really now uh, we've got the consult consultation period. We'll work with those industry groups. Uh, but I imagine that there will be, uh, you know, the usual scare campaign. I've already seen the opposition out there saying that somehow or other, you know, utes are never going to be on the road anymore. That's just simply not true. We've had the US has had uh, fuel efficiency standards, efficiency standards for over, you know, since the 1970s. I'm pretty sure if you look on any road in the US today, there are SUVs, there are pickup trucks or utes being driven everywhere. Parliament resumes tomorrow. The government will introduce its revamped tax package. You yet to gain parliamentary support for that. Some cite a broken promise. Voters seem not to mind about that right now, but it would be a brave political party that breaks another promise. Well, in our view, very, very clearly, this has been the right decision uh, for us to take because you can't sit by and hear people saying how much pressure they're under uh, and not do anything about it. I think that's really you know, what people expect of leaders. It's, you know, you can what people expect us to do when we're elected. It's not for us to you know, be stuck in uh, political arguments. It's actually to do what's right and what is going to actually help people. And I don't think any of us... Uh, could stand by in the circumstances we're seeing people in at the moment and not do anything. It's why we're wanting to bring the most efficient cars here into the market. It's why we think that we had, you know, we needed to change the stage three tax cuts. Uh, really important that we'll see, you know, millions of more Australians actually receive a bigger tax cut, and that's the right thing to do for the country. Catherine King, thanks for talking to AM. Really good to be with you, Sabra. And Catherine King is the Federal Transport Minister. The celebrated Aboriginal campaigner Luitja O'Donoghue is being remembered as a tireless advocate who used common sense and calm to bring people together. The 91-year-old Yankunjara leader and activist died yesterday with her family by her side. She's known for her work with native title law negotiations, heading the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission and improving Aboriginal health. She's also remembered for her warmth and grace, as Stephanie Smale reports. Loacha O'Donoghue dedicated her life to improving the rights, health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Indigenous leader Professor Marcia Langton witnessed her talent at bringing people together firsthand during the Native Title Act negotiations after the 1992 Mabo decision. She brought everybody together in a very sensible way and led people to agreement and usually the right conclusion. Loicha O'Donoghue was a member of the Stolen Generations and didn't meet her mother for more than 30 years after she was taken at two years of age. Marcia Langton explains Dr O'Donoghue pushed through adversity to fight for equality and against racism. She understood racism. She was the victim of a great deal of racism throughout her life, but she always put the pain of it aside and soldiered on with the task at hand. The Yunkinjara leader's hard work led to a long list of achievements, including being awarded Australian of the Year, named a Companion of the Order of Australia and becoming the first Australian Aboriginal person to address the United Nations General Assembly. For Professor Langton, she was unprecedented as a role model. 
until she became the chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, the idea that an Indigenous woman would have a national leadership role was just incredible. The Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, was also inspired by Dr O'Donoghue's leadership. There are many lessons many of us take from the life of Loacher and most importantly, of course, you learnt the truth and Loacher's life was a story of the truth that this nation needs to come to terms with. Author Stuart Rintoul, who wrote Dr O'Donoghue's biography, says she overcame the hardest of beginnings to help deliver enormous change in Australia. It's an astonishing, an astonishing journey for anyone and for an Aboriginal child removed from her mother, told that she would amount to nothing. It's one of the truly great stories of Australia's recent history. Indigenous academic and activist Noel Pearson describes Dr O'Donoghue as Australia's greatest Indigenous leader. We will miss her, but her counsel and her legacy will live on. Loacha O'Donoghue's family says she was their matriarch, whom they have loved and looked up to their entire lives. In a statement, they say they had never-ending pride as she became one of the most respected and influential Aboriginal leaders the country has ever known. Stephanie Smale reporting. The next chapter in Ben Robert Smith's long-running defamation case gets underway today in Sydney with the start of his appeal hearing. Last June, a federal court dismissed his case against the newspapers The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Canberra Times and found it was more likely than not that one of Australia's most decorated soldiers had been involved in the unlawful killings of four Afghan civilians. Mr Robert Smith strenuously denies those allegations. Samantha Donovan reports. It's a defamation case that's already had more than 100 days of hearings over several years and cost an estimated $25 to $35 million. Now Ben Robert Smith is again trying to clear his name, this time with an appeal of last year's decision in front of the full bench of the federal court. Dr Michael Douglas is a defamation consultant at law firm Bennett. This appeal is about attacking the primary judge's findings of fact That is, where some appeals turn on arguments that the judge misunderstood the law or misapplied the law. The gist here is that we've got attacks on the conclusions the original judge made based on the evidence. It's going to be a hard task for the appellant, Mr Robert Smith, in that having an appeal court overturn a judge's disposition of the evidence when that judge reviewed a lot of evidence and was quite careful. It's always going to be very difficult. So how are Mr Robert Smith and his lawyers arguing the judgment of Justice Anthony Basanko was wrong? They're going after the idea that it's true or it's justified that Mr Robert Smith engaged in war crimes. So those findings, the the truth findings, were based on a lot of different witness evidence. And so they're attacking various conclusions made by the judge as to the facts, which involves them saying, well, the evidence was X, the conclusion of fact was Y, there's some logical disjunction there. 
Well, that's what they're arguing anyway. Ben Robert-Smith's former employer, the media billionaire Kerry Stokes, has been backing the defamation action. And last December, the federal court ordered Mr Stokes' private company, Australian Capital Equity, to pay the costs of the failed case. The court has also ordered Mr Robert-Smith to pay a $910,000 surety to the court to cover the costs of this appeal in the event he loses. Dr Douglas. Well, it'll be an expensive appeal, but the cost of the appeal is dwarfed by the cost of the underlying fight. So here, if, for example, the media succeed on appeal again, it just means they're going to get even more money out of Ben Robert Smith. The hearing of Ben Robert Smith's appeal is expected to run for 10 days. The newspaper's legal team is again being led by Nicholas Owens SC. Mr Robert Smith has briefed three senior counsel to argue his case, including Brett Walker. The renowned Sydney Silk-led Cardinal George Pell's successful High Court appeal against his conviction for sexual abuse. Samantha Donovan. Indonesia's president looks set to break convention and openly campaign for candidates just a week out from the country's election. Joko Widodo is backing his own son to become the country's next vice president, along with a veteran candidate who's seeking the top job. Widodo can't stand for the election. Indonesian law prevents him from running for a third term. Despite some critics, many Indonesians are shrugging off concerns about nepotism. Here's Indonesia correspondent Bill Bertels. At rallies across Indonesia, supporters and candidates are dancing. The sight of 72-year-old former military man Prabowo Subianto showing off his moves has become a viral hit for supporters. He's the front-runner for president, but at a rally in central Java, many said they were there for his support act. 36-year-old Gibran Rakabuming Raka looks a bit like father and son standing next to Prabowo. But his dad is actually the current president, Joko Widodo, known as Jokowi, a man who is still hugely popular but will have to stand down due to term limits. I am a supporter of President Jokowi, a farmer attending the rally says, so I will vote for his son Gibran. And Gibran is running to be Prabowo's deputy, so I'll support Prabowo too, he said. It's a common sentiment particularly in Gibran's hometown Solo, a city of about half a million people. He's been the mayor for two years, which a court headed by Gibran's uncle deemed enough experience for him to run for vice president, even though he's four years shy of the minimum age requirement. Akila Chikalayanto is a university student in Solo and a first-time voter. To be honest, I was surprised when I first heard that Gibran was running for vice president because he's only been the mayor of Solo for two years and he's also quite young. I think it's better for him to finish off his term in Solo first. But she's pondering voting for him. As mayor of Solo, Gibran works fast. He gets results, he's very active on social media and he's close to the people. Her friend, Vemas Adesu, Putra says he's willing to overlook the nepotism of Gibran's rapid rise because his dad, Jokowi, is a good leader. I'm not concerned about a new political dynasty because I've seen that Jokowi is really genuinely working for Indonesia. While President Joko Widodo is assumed to be backing the Prabowo-Gibran pair, he's refrained from publicly declaring it to avoid accusations of meddling. 
but he's now suggested it is OK for a sitting president to campaign in a hint he'll join his son and Prabowo Subianto in the coming days. To try to boost their vote above 50%, the number needed to avoid a runoff election later this year. In Solo, Central Java, this is Bill Birdles reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 2024 is the year of elections, from the US to Indonesia, the UK, Russia and India. Around half the global population will be eligible to vote this year. So democracy must be thriving, right? Well, it's not that simple. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.